0: You know, I, uh, I had an idea on what I wanted to talk about this morning, and God kept bringing something else to my mind. And I was like, "No, I no." <laughs> I was like, "No." So I'm trying to study something else and get ready for something else, and God keeps just not letting me leave this alone. So I'm like, "All right, you win. Let's get into this." And so, but before we actually jump into this, this morning's message, I want to show you a few comic strips, and, and I want to see if you can figure out the theme that we're looking at this morning, if you had not seen the post on Facebook on the Open Door site. And so there is a particular theme hidden inside of each of these comic strips. For instance, the first one is Ziggy. I got a new smart car. Now it's hiding from me. <laughs> okay, what about uh, one of my favorites is Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin, where are you? Get out of here. Come on, Calvin, I'm getting tired of this. I mean it, Calvin. Come out, take your bath now. Sooner or later, she's going to have to question whether this is really worth all the trouble she's going through. How many of us have little boys that are like that? You know, they just don't want to bathe. It's that time of the year, and they just don't want to. What about the next one? Dogs are so dumb. I got two dogs. We've always been a dog family, but if you don't get this, just let it sink in. He doesn't realize that Garfield's behind him. Okay, so you have to have my type of sense of humor to really get this particular joke. I'm a cat guy. I like dogs, but dogs are just dumb. What about the last one? The last one's my daughter's favorite. So if you see her, she loves Peanuts and Charlie Brown. So you sure you got yourself wet sitting out there in the rain, Snoopy? But after I towel you off, you'll be nice and warm and fuzzy. And he's like, I'm going to have to go into hiding. (laughs) It is dog. That's why you don't give cats a bath. But so there's a hidden theme in each of these comic strips. Can you figure out what the theme is inside of each and every one of these? Hiding. Hiding. (laughs) Laney. Hiding? Cool, yeah. So there's a theme of hiding in each and every one of these. And that's what I want to look at this morning. Like I said, I wanted to talk about something I'm already very much entrenched in studying right now. But God's like, no, I want you to talk about what's known as the hiddenness of God. The divine hiddenness of God. How many people has heard of that term before? Okay, this will be new for some of y'all. So because this is very uncommon for most people, I want to go ahead and define what it is. So the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy says that the hiddenness of God or divine hiddenness refers most fundamentally to the hiddenness of God, i.e. the alleged fact that God is hidden, absent, or silent Eric Metaxas in a- Is Atheism Dead, who is an apologist, says that divine hiddenness, or the argument from divine hiddenness, is a philosophical approach that attempts to explain why some people do not recognize the existence of God if God indeed exists. In other words, the atheistic philosopher would want to say that if God's desire is for the whole world to be saved, then why doesn't he make his existence so well known that people have no choice but to accept the reality of his existence? So this is the argument. But let's consider some evidence in three typical areas that I like to call creation, conscience, and Christ. And so the first area is creation. In creation, when God had created the heavens and the earth, That He had created a few things. First, he created uh, what's known as natural laws, scientific laws. The law of abiogenesis simply means that life comes from life, that life does not come from non-life. In other words, if you were to put a mason jar, an empty mason jar, on your desk or on your table, wherever, and you let it sit there, well, 10, 20, 30, 500 years It will not sprout any life. So the law of abiogenesis means that life only comes from life. The other aspect of a scientific law is known as the conservation of angular momentum. In other words, did you know in our solar system that out of the nine planets, well, eight, sorry, Pluto, but out of the eight planets, two of them actually rotate the opposite direction on its axis. Two of them are rotating the wrong way, uh, is prograde and and retrograde. And so these two, which I think is Uranus and Venus, are rotating the completely different uh, uh, direction. Which goes to argue if there was a big bang and everything came from singularity, you would imagine everything would spin in the same exact direction. The law of uh, conservation of angular momentum says that things will rotate in that direction unless it's met with an outside force. And then it'll reverse its rotation. So God has created some natural scientific laws. He's also established what's known as the laws of logic. Now many people may not have ever heard of the laws of logic. But uh, simply if you know the law of non-contradiction, you know the laws of logic. In other words, two opposing views cannot be equally true at the same time. Either the God of the Bible is the true God. Or the God of the Quran is the true God. They're completely opposite direct depictions of God. They both cannot be true. So either one of them is true or they're both false. And praise God, we know which one is the true God. And so that's the law of non-contradiction. The excluded middle is simply the fact that something either is or it isn't. It is either raining or it is not raining. And so God has created these laws of logic that are abstract. They're concepts, they're part of the laws that God has written inside of the created order. In other words, this abstract metaphysical Idea does not become created through evolution and random chance. These have to be actually established by an intelligent mind. And so that's the first part. The second part is the conscience. The conscience reveals the fact that we have the moral law. That there are some laws of morality that everybody, regardless of what time, culture you live in, everybody knows certain things. Like, for instance, I used to use the term cannibalism. You know, no right person will, yo, perform cannibalism. But there are some actual tribes that do perform cannibalism because they believe that they're honoring their deceased ancestors and it helps them in the afterlife, stuff like that. However, comma, there are certain moral laws such as everybody knows it's wrong to torture innocent babies for fun. Okay? So everybody intrinsically just knows that. There are certain laws that are written on our conscience that tells us something's right or wrong. The other aspect of the conscience is the fact that everybody has an intrinsic desire to worship something. It doesn't matter where you are, when you are, everybody worships something. Whether it's the remotest tribe in Africa or in Indonesia or whether it's here in America, we all worship something. That intrinsic desire to worship has to come from somewhere. And then as far as Christ, the historicity of Jesus Christ and his existence is so well attested that most critics to the Bible stop using this argument to say that Jesus never once existed. You have Pliny the Younger, Tacitus, you have Lucian of Samasota, you have so many people, Josephus, Marbar, Sarpion in the first century AD, that write about this itinerant Jewish preacher that was performing supernatural wonders. And so there's a lot of testimony as far as this man that the Bible calls Jesus, that we believe is our Savior, did in fact exist. Plus, there's a theological necessity of his existence as well when we're looking at the creation, the fall, the sin, and the redemption. But then also the empty tomb. Everybody has to explain why the tomb is empty. How did it become empty? Did the apostles steal the body? Did the apostles misplace the body? Was it a hallucination? When we looked at all those months back, we realized every single one of those hypotheses failed to hold up to scrutiny. Matter of fact, uh, atheist Bertrand Russell was once asked what he would say to explain his atheism if he were to confront God after his death. You know what Bertrand Russell would say? Not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. You see, my message this morning is not about this aspect of the hiddenness of God, but I do want to point this out because a lot of times when we talk about the hiddenness of God, it's this that we're thinking of. God, if, if you want everybody to be saved, but yet it seems like you have a veil, a shroud around your existence, why don't you just make yourself so fully known? Why can't you just materialize right here in front of me, and I would so fully know you're real that I would do nothing else but believe? I like what C.S. Lewis said in the Screwtape Letters. He says this, as far as that is concerned. The irresistible and the indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of God's scheme forbids him to use. Merely to override a human will would be for him useless. He cannot ravish. He can only woo. You see, there's a measure of free will that God has given every single person. And so that he doesn't overcome our free will, he gives, as you've probably heard before, enough evidence for those that are truly seeking him to find him, but also enough non evidence, if you will, for the skeptic that doesn't want to see him can miss him. And so there's evidence all around for the existence of God and for the empty tomb and the resurrection of Christ. The question is what do we do with the evidence? I just wanted to do a very brief overview as far as this aspect of divine hiddenness of God because that's often what people hear about when they're dealing with this topic. But this morning, I'm not actually talking about this part of the divine hiddenness. We could talk about evidential apologetics all day long. We could talk about how mind creates matter and the matter does not create the mind, how that a painter needs a, a painting needs a painter, a car requires a car manufacturer. We could talk all about those things. But we've been there before and we've talked about it before. What I want to talk about is the aspect of the hiddenness of God in the life of a believer. That's what I want to talk about. Have you had those moments where you're, you feel like God isn't listening to you? Have you ever been struggling with a relationship situation? You're praying, God, help heal this relationship. Or you're struggling with a financial crisis. You're like, God, I don't have the wherewithal to make ends meet. Please provide the ability to pay this bill. Or, what about discerning the will of God? God, I want to know what you want me to do. So, why can't you just plainly tell me where to go? Has that been you at all in your life as a believer? God, I'm praying. I'm asking you, help. I'm asking you, how do I get from point A to point B? This is the hiddenness of God I want to talk about this morning in the life of you and me as a Christian believer. Is God hidden? in our lives I want to turn to the text this morning it's in the book of Psalms Psalm chapter 13 and if you don't have your Bible that's okay because we'll have it up here on the screen you see this if, if you're struggling one of the best books in the Bible to go to is to go to the book of Psalms because Psalms is a very raw book the book of Psalms allows you to get into the heart of the psalmist And here we're going to do exactly that in Psalm chapter 13. Verse number 1, the psalmist says, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Light my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed against him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord, because he hath dealt bountifully with me. Let us pray. God, I thank you for this morning. And, and my heart goes out to see Brian and Autumn and the kids move away for the military. But God, we're thankful for the fact that whether this side of heaven or that side of heaven, we'll be able to reunite again. And so we don't say goodbye, we say see you later. Lord, we thank you for the preservation of your word that allows us to get into certain chapters of the book of Psalms to help us when we're struggling through things like this. So God, I pray that the Spirit would just do the work. I'm nothing, I can say nothing, I have no wisdom in myself. And so, God, I just pray that the Spirit would just use me, speak through me to reach hearts, to affect change, to encourage whatever needs to be done this morning. And so I pray you'd receive all their honor and glory in what we do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You see, I want to give three steps as far as how to discern God's quote-unquote inactivity in our life. So if you've been struggling, if you're praying to God, God, why are you not answering me? I want to give you three things to consider when we're struggling with God hiding from us. The first thing is actually uh, interesting. The first thing is complain. Complain to God. Would that be your first thought to complain when you're struggling? Well, let's see what the psalmist says in verse 1 and 2. Right off the bat, he jumps right into it How long will thou forget me, O Lord? How long will thy hide thy face from me? I can almost sense the tears coming off this page. The matter the fact of the matter that he's saying how long reveals what? That he's been struggling for a bit. He's saying, God, how long are you not gonna listen? He's complaining. He's venting to God. Have you ever felt this anguish in your life? Maybe not necessarily with your relationship with God, but maybe somebody else. Have you ever felt the anguish? How long are you not going to listen? How long are you going to ignore me? How long are you going to leave me? Have you ever felt that? I want to encourage you. If you felt that anguish, that means what you're anguished about matters to you. This psalmist is saying, in anguish, how long? You realize the, um, the type of relationship he has with God? He said, God, I know you can fix my situation. But you're not. How long? There's a deep relationship right here. And when you're anguished over something, it's because it really bothers you. You see, there's something cathartic and getting our feelings out, getting our emotions out. There is something therapeutic and healing in that. Elijah did the same thing when he was fleeing Jezebel. David did this numerous times, fleeing Saul. Job, need we bring up Job as well when he lost everything? Paul, his thorn in the flesh, he besought the Lord three times. God, please remove this thorn in my flesh. How long... God you see when God seems hidden in our life if we're not anguished over it we probably don't have the right amount of care and concern about it the depth of our anguish oftentimes reveal how much we truly care about the situation and the relationship you see when I was in the military I knew somebody that was a cutter this individual would cut herself And there's one time, it was late at night, I get a phone call crying hysterically. I can't stop cutting myself. I can't stop. Help me. Drop what I'm doing. I pick this individual up. We go to the emergency room. You know, the thing about cutters is when you've reached that far, most of the time they're cutting themselves because they want to feel something. They want to feel like they're alive because they feel so dead inside. I'm thankful to report this individual is much better now actually engaged to be married and doing very well. But in the midst of that situation she just she wanted to feel human, she wanted to feel something. There was anguish there. You see, oftentimes these raw negative emotions come because of unanswered prayers, do they not? because we're asking God how long you're seeing this help me deliver me right well I want to show you what Dr. Jonathan McClashy has to say he says nowhere in scripture are we promised that prayer will be accompanied by an internal sense of being heard rather prayer is supposed to be accompanied by a conviction that our prayers are heard in Christ since it is through him that we have access to God you see we tend to question the goodness of God based on the fact on our, our prayers being answered the way we think it should be. You see, if God doesn't answer our prayers many times in our natural state, we tend to question whether he even exists or whether he even loves us. You see, that's exactly what Satan wanted to do with Job in Job 1.11 and Job 2.5. Satan says, but put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. Job 2 5, but put forth thy hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. You see, Job wants to destroy your testimony. And it's in the midst of these days and these situations when it seems like God is hidden that Satan's going to attack the most. So the question is all right, so in verses 1 and 2, there's this anguish, there's this raw emotion. So the question is, how did we get here? How did we get to the point where we feel like God is completely hidden from us? Well, I believe there's possibly, uh, there's three possibilities. Number one, I think is possibly because of sin. In the book of Genesis, chapter number three, verse number eight, we read, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. The first person, and really the only person that hid, is us to God you look in scripture, God wasn't hiding from them. Adam and Eve hid from God. Why? Because of sin. Sin separated them, and because of that sin, it broke that relationship. You see, the psalmist writes in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, guess what? The Lord will not hear me. And so sometimes it it may be God is silent, if you will, because maybe there's unconfessed sin in our life. Maybe there's some really bad misshapen priorities that we're choosing this or that over God. Maybe it's the fact that we have some active sin in our life that we know we shouldn't be doing, but yet we're trying to keep it under the rug. So that's one possibility on how we get to this anguish. The second one is possibly we left fellowship. We left the fellowship of God. You see, it... it, took me a while to learn this in marriage, but in, in marriage, I had to learn, you have to date your spouse. Dating your spouse should never stop, right? You see, I was like, well, Rebecca, I told you I loved you, you know, when we were dating. You know I love you, right? I was like, well, we got married. I got put a ring on your finger, right? You know I love you. No. Okay. Well, we have two beautiful kids. Doesn't that reveal the fact that I love you? a guy yes I mean, right that's that's what we assume you know we say these things last year did this you know a year ago whatever the case is doesn't that reveal the fact that we love you maybe that's the whole reason why Rebecca had given me silent treatment a lot of times because what I was thinking was a reflection of my love really actually wasn't and so think about that think about if you're an adult how many friends did you have back then that you don't have anymore As you get older, it seems like our circle of friends get less and less. Is that right? I mean, it could be because we mature, they immature, or maybe the other way around. Or it could be the fact that keeping the friendships, keeping fellowship, takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of intentionality in fellowshipping with one another. You see, Jesus said to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse number 4, You have left your first love. So my question is, sometimes we get to this period of emotional turmoil and distress because we left the fellowship of God. When was the last time we opened the Bible at the house? Not a devotion, not a book about the Bible, but the Bible. To read his word that he wrote to us. When was the last time we actually prayed and meant it and we weren't sitting around the dinner table or a meal? You see, sometimes that hiddenness of God is because we have left our first love. We have went so far away from the fellowship of God that now we're trying to reach, get in touch with some friends we knew back in high school or middle school that we haven't talked to in years. And how estranged is that relationship now? So sometimes it's because of the loss of fellowship. There's one other possibility as far as why we can reach this way. Maybe it's because there's a purpose in it. Have you ever considered that? That there's a purpose in the struggles that you're going through. If you truly believe you're in fellowship with God and truly believe you're not living in any sort of sin of commission, you haven't committed any sort of sin of omission, whatever the case is, it may be that God may seem hidden because there's a purpose in the trial. Have we considered that? If we're like the Job and can honestly say that, it's actually those moments when you think about it, God is most active in our life. If it's because of sin, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If it's because of lack of fellowship and the fact that we straight away, we have to build on that fellowship. Those are things that we have estranged ourselves from God. But if it's because of a purpose, those are the moments that God is most active in our life, whether you believe it or not. You see, it's not that God is hidden, but that God is trying to grow our countenance to be more like Christ. See, I want you to think of something. Faith is not strengthened by the visibility of the Father. It's strengthened by our trust in his purpose. How much faith is there to believe in something that you see? Very little, right? However, to trust what one is saying or doing in your life necessitates a higher degree, a greater degree of faith. And it's actually faith in the one involved. You see, could it not be said if you're like a Job and God seems to be hidden from you? After all, God says to Job, consider my servant Job. There's none like him on the earth. He is upright and perfect. Now he had sinned, but living as Job lived, he was pretty much the epitome of what a believer in Christ or God should look like. And yet, he was going through trials. Could it be if we're like that aspect of Job, that like Job, God is trying to stretch our faith to a greater degree than that of our peers? And there's a purpose for him doing that. God knows just like he knew Job. God knew Job would be able to handle the test because Job relied on God. God knew Abraham would handle the test because Abraham relied on God. And so to use those two individuals as great pictures of great feats of faith, I believe God knew they were able to do it through their faith in God, not in their own works. And so if God knows you and I, then God knows who may be able to exhibit greater amounts of feats of faith than those of our peers. And I'll get to that here in a minute. You see, okay, so we've complained to God. We're trying to figure out how we got here. This anguish, this emotion, this struggle we're going through. God's not answering. What do we do next? (laughs) We pray. Very counterintuitive, right? That we're complaining to God. God, you're not hearing me. So what's the next thing you do? You pray. You pray. Verse 3 and 4, consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. He's praying to God. He's saying, God, you're hiding from me. You're silent. So what purpose is there in prayer then if you really believe God is silent? The next thing we do is we pray. Even though we feel like he's absent, we trust the fact that he has not left us. Remember, Satan's whole purpose is for us to look at these situations and curse God. Matter of fact, Job's wife said, why don't you just hurry up and curse God and die? But yeah, the Bible says in Job chapter 1 that in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He neither did he charge God foolishly. And so we need to go to prayer. But it's interesting, here in verse number 3, the psalmist writes, consider and hear me, O Lord my God, lighten my eyes, lighten my eyes. You see, Job's, James chapter 1, verse number 5 James says, in the midst of the struggles, if any man lacks faith, pray for faith and God will give it to him. Or pray for wisdom He's God will give it to him. God is not just t- saying if you're lacking wisdom that you just pray for wisdom generally. Yes, that's a general proof, a truth, it's a general proverb. But what God is saying in James chapter 1 verse number 5 is if any of you lack wisdom, pray to God. He's talking about struggles and trials. James is saying, in the midst of your struggle and your trial, pray for wisdom of that struggle and trial. In other words, like what the psalmist here says in verse number three, lighten my eyes, pray for clarity and discernment in what's going on. Pray, God, reveal unto me if there's any unclean thing in my heart. Allow me to realize if there's any unconfessed sin, sin that I may not really know about. That way I can get back into a right relationship with you. God, give me clarity if I have left fellowship with you. Give me a burden to come back. Give me that wisdom. You see, we have to have the conviction the fact that we are not alone, that God is right there with us. It's difficult. But it takes intentional effort. So that's why in the midst of our anguish, we have got to pray for clarity, wisdom, and discernment. But you know, we have to do it with a zeal. If we have preach this level of anguish, that means something really is struggling with us. Something's, we care. And so if we care to that degree, God, why are you silent? Then it's not just going to be a one-day one prayer. Say, God, give me wisdom. It's going to be a continual, God, give me wisdom. God, give me wisdom. Show me. Give me understanding. Lighten my eyes. You're going to be searching for a while. You see, the other day, I had lost my TV remote, the Roku remote. And so I was looking frantically for my remote control. I'm telling you, if you're at our house, and probably if you're at your house, if if you can't find the remote control, life goes on hold. You don't do anything until you find that remote control. We look... I looked in the bathroom for the remote control. That's how diligent I was in trying to find out where this like three-inch little plastic with batteries contraption was. I looked everywhere, opening doors, drawers. One time I was trying to put cheeseburgers away when we lived in South Dakota and my wife found them in the pullout drawer by the refrigerator a couple days later. So I'm liable, liable to put stuff anywhere. So I'm searching up and down for this remote control until finally we find it behind the couch. Yes, we looked in the couch like 28 times, but we found it in like a little hidden compartment in the couch. I don't know why there's a hidden compartment there, but our remote control can find it. And so we finally found it. And then guess what? Life was good. And then we turned TV off and we just went about our days. Why do we frantically search for it? But it bothered me that much that I spent so much time and effort and energy to find the remote. If we have this much anguish over our situation, God, why are you not listening to me? Then we need to spend the same amount of zealousness to go ahead and find out, God, give me wisdom to know what's going on. If it's sin, let me know. If it's fellowship, let me grow. If it's purpose, give me the strength and the wisdom. You see, again... Like Dr. McClashy said, a lot of times we get prayer all wrong. Too many times we're merely trying to get out of a jam. We focus on the circumstance and not on the Savior. We seek deliverance rather than the deliverer. We look, out, we look for a way out rather than a way up. And that's oftentimes what happens in these moments. If we truly believe God seems hidden and it's not because of sin, it's not because of brokenness and fellowship, then God is probably purposefully Trying to build your character, build your faith. You see, with that, the last thing we're supposed to do in these days, we're going to complain, we're going to pray, but then we're going to praise. We're going to praise. Remember, verse number 1, how long are you hiding from me? But then verse 5, I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. Regardless of the psalmist's feelings of anguish and what's going on, he ends it with praise. That is counterintuitive to us. Counterintuitive to any pop psychology out there. Like Pastor Ken was talking about, the sacrifice of praise. Because our faith has to be more about fact than feeling. So what do we do while we're waiting for God's quote-unquote activity in our life? We trust in the goodness of God. If it's sin trust that God will forgive if its fellowship trust that God will restore if its purpose trust that God will fulfill realize two things these days where God seems hidden they don't come for evil but they come for good Romans chapter 5, 3 through 5. And not only so, but we glory in our tribulations also. Knowing what? That tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Not only that, James 1 3, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. In Romans 8 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. You see, a lot of times we want to tie Romans eight twenty eight into what's known as the golden chain of justification or the golden chain of salvation, which in reality is, uh, in my mind, a way that Calvinists try to go ahead and teach their inability and election nonsense. But what Romans 8:28 really is talking about if you go back to verse number 17 in the book of Romans the chapter 8 he says if children then heirs if heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ if so be that we suffer with him that we may be glorified together. What I believe Romans 8:17 through the essentially the end of chapter 8 God is not talking about just every single thing in our life is going to turn out for good. Yes, God can do that. But contextually, I believe God in that Romans chapter 8 is talking about are those that are like a Job or those that may be like an Abraham that have been called for a specific purpose of character building because God knows the quality of faith they have in him. It may be the fact that what we're going through is to build our faith to such a degree That we can be like a modern day Paul. That we could be like a modern day Job. That we can reflect the glory of God. Job 1 verse number 8. Again, God knew what Job would be able to do with his faith in God. Not in his faith in himself, but his faith in God. I personally believe, and I have some material on this for C4C, that this passage is talking about some people may be called to a purpose of struggle because if you're going to be used to a greater area of responsibility, sometimes it requires a greater depth of faith, a greater depth of experience, a greater depth of empathy. And so there may be times where God is purposefully allowing these things in our life. The other thing I want you to realize, not only do these days come for good, but God is with you in the midst of all of this. Romans chapter 8, 15 and 18, through 18, you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's in the middle of that golden chain of salvation passage. Or what about 1 Corinthians chapter 10? There is no temptation taking you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able, able to bear it. In 2 Corinthians twelve nine, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, in these moments of anguish, we're like, God, how long? You're not listening to us. What are you going to do about my situation? First thing we need to do, we need to be honest. We need to get our feelings out there with God. He already knows what's in our heart, but you know as well as I do, in this physical body, it is therapeutic to get our emotions out in the right way. Not only do we complain to God, but we pray to God. Pray for wisdom, discernment. God, what is going on? How do I fix this? Is it sin? Is it fellowship? Is there a purpose? You trust. And then at the end of the day, you praise. Even if i am never delivered from fill in the blank. You took three nails from me and a crown of thorns for my eternity. Even if I never see that thorn in my eye delivered or thorn in my flesh delivered, yet will I trust him. I know that my redeemer lives and I will see him again. You see, we trust. You see, when we realize the so-called hiddenness of God in the life of a believer, when we realize that it's purposeful in growing us more like Christ, we realize God's hiddenness in that moment is not so hidden at all. Instead, God is actively engaged with your life, seeking to build you for a greater purpose. And that's worthy of praise. While Satan wants you to believe God is absent, and Satan wants you to curse God, God is seeking to build you for a greater purpose for him and for your life. The greater the growth, the greater the ability. We praise God For being so visible in the hidden moments of our life. You see, I want to end with this picture. This picture right here is a picture of a ripple. Some of you understand the background, the meaning of this picture, but there's a period in time in my life, Christian apologists, one of the things they struggle with is the existence of God and you're always confronted with questions and it seems like, you know, hey, that makes sense. You know, maybe this is true from a critic or whatever. So there's a period of my time where I was struggling and I was in anguish, I'm like, God, I'm, I'm praying. You're not listening, you're not answering, you're nowhere to be found. And so I was, I gotta get away. So I spent a few days out in Oak Mountain State Park. While I was there, I, I got on my knees, I, I checked in, got on my knees, prayed at the couch. And I just stopped praying. Like, it feels like I'm talking to nobody, you're not up there. I just stopped praying. So I go about my day and do my, do my thing, and I'm, I'm reading a book, and I'm trying to think about things. And I come across this. I'm sitting, there's a little lake right there. And I'm sitting here and I see that. It dawns on me. It's like the spirit just gave me something. It was like, not once have I ever seen what was in that lake. I don't know what was in there. But the fact that I saw ripples reveals the fact that something's in that lake. It's caught in inference. Because I'm able to sit there and see these ripples come over and over again. Something's making that to happen. Which makes me realize, (laughs) I see ripples all around this created world. Because I can see these ripples, even though I can't see the rippler, I see his effects all around us. It's not that God's not existent. It's that his evidence is all around us. It depends on what we do with that evidence. And the same thing goes with our Christian lives as well. Do we see him in our life? For most of us though, this is not a new teaching, or message. We've heard it before. It's not a knowledge issue. And with me, it wasn't a knowledge issue as well. I knew all the arguments for God's existence. This was more of a love and trust issue. Let me, let me, let me uh, give you this and we'll be done. If you know the truth, do you believe it? If you know the truth, do you believe it? If you believe the truth, do you even trust it? Do you trust what you believe? If you trust the truth, what's the problem? What is the problem? If we know these days may come, we believe these days may come, and we trust God is with us in these days that come, then what's the problem? Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into diverse temptations. And so the question, when God is so-called hidden, do we know, do we believe Do we trust? Those with greater faith have greater trust. And so it's not a knowledge issue. It's a trust or a love issue a lot of times. Let us pray. God, I thank you for just this message and giving clarity as far as the psalmist in Psalm 13 as far as what to do in these days when it seems like you're hidden. So God, forgive us when we speak against you or try to put you on trial. But Lord, give us wisdom to know what to do, how to reconcile it. And even if it's weeks or days or months when we're still waiting, give us the ability to trust that there is a purpose in the pain. And so, Lord, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So at this time.